Chapter Sixteen of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Preed. Chapter Sixteen. Barrington and Honoria. Honoria was mutely wondering when an opportunity would occur for approaching the subject of her idiosyncrasies upon which Barrington had so lightly touched. The Englishman had impressed her fancy. After all, had Dyson Maddox but known the fact, it needed nothing so very heroic in quality to enchain her interest, only a refined address, the prestige of aristocratic connections, a dexterous knack of handling commonplace, and a persistent gaze which should be far removed from impertinent admiration. As Barrington stepped from the veranda towards her, she was ready to acknowledge that he was the most distinguished-looking person she had ever met. Janie was entreating Angela to tell her a story. The child despised her sister's nursery tales, which invariably dealt with Kakamaru, Mother Bunch, and such like commonplace bogies. But Angela had a delicious repertoire of fairy lore. There was a dim region beyond the Kurong Crag, mysterious now in the gathering twilight, which was the paradise of water-witches and flower-elves, where dwelt the praying mantis, the high priest of the plain, the souls of the black piccaninnies, which had attained the dignity of storm-spirits, and such like mythic creatures which furnished food for Angela's vivid imagination. While the child listened wonder-eyed, Honoria moved a few paces apart, and Barrington joining her, asked her the names of two peaks which rose on the horizon, they conversed smoothly upon generalities for a little while, discussed the scenery, the climate, the social characteristics of the Kurong, the habits of the Aborigines, the signification of native words. Whilst he talked, Honoria abstractedly twisted round her fingers a serpent bracelet that she wore upon her wrist. It suddenly snapped and fell to the ground. Barrington gathered up the links and placed them in her hand. Talking of the blacks' language, he said, looking at the ruby-scaled head with its diamond eyes, are your ornaments emblematic? I am told that Kuralbin means the abode of serpents. Kuralbang is literally, I believe, dead serpents, answered Honoria carelessly. I rather like the connection of ideas. There is something weird and uncanny in it. Barrington looked at her fixedly and repeated. Upon her crest she wore a wannish fire. "'sprinkled with stars, like Ariadne's tire. "'She colored slightly. "'Oh, everyone who reads or pretends to read Keats "'quotes Lamia to me. "'But I had rather you did not add to the number. "'I am sure that you cannot wish to be commonplace. "'There is a certain hackneyed phase of admiration "'which when applied to a particular object "'ceases to be commonplace,' replied Barrington gallantly. Honoria laughed consciously, but she hesitated to meet his eyes. They affected her strangely. Suddenly she looked boldly up and began. You said something about me this afternoon, about my character, which made me think that perhaps you understood me. You see, said Barrington, that to be interesting involves the penalty of being sometimes the subject of speculation. I should not dislike being studied if— Honoria left her sentence unfinished. If you could be shown the cause of your vague dissatisfaction. Your life is faintly inharmonious, and you are conscious of a want which you can hardly express. Do you know why I am discontented? said Honoria dreamily. 
It is strange. I... She lifted her head and said with an effort at gaiety, When I know you better, I shall ask you to tell me the reason. It would be hardly fair to put you to the test so soon. I am ready to answer it, replied Barrington. Honoria turned and rejoined Angela. But what for did the storm spirits drown the poor butterfly? cried little Janie, the tears running down her cheeks. I'll never be sorry no more for the black pickaninnies that die. Little mother, I think your stories are best after all. Tell me, Janie, said Barrington, why do you call your sister little mother? My mamma is in heaven, announced Janie gravely. She is big now that she has got wings, ever so much bigger than she used to be. You shouldn't talk, you should attend. Angela tells nice stories when they end well, and some things is true, ain't they? added Janie reflectively. At that moment, a bell ringing within summoned them to dress for dinner. Barrington stood watching Honoria as she led Janie to the house, then turned to Angela, who had lingered to gather a flower. "'My little friend,' he said affectionately, "'you look paler than when I was here before. Are you quite well? Will you row me on the lagoon this evening?' Angela shook her head. "'I must go on the water no more at night. It has made me ill.' Mrs. Ferris says that I must stay within. I should not have minded her, but my father has forbidden me also. Ill? he repeated. Indeed. I am sorry for that. What is the matter? Oh, it is nothing. I am tired, that is all. I have a cough, and my appetite is gone, and I sleep badly. But, she added, what difference does it make whether one is waking or sleeping if one has pleasant dreams, and those the fairies always send me? Tell me, she said, taking his hand and looking earnestly into his face, shall you love me less now that Honoria has come? Jealous little puss, he replied, pressing her hand. I shall always love you. Have we not made a compact that you are to be my little sister? She did not answer, but regarded him wistfully for a moment, then gave him a little bouquet that she had arranged and went into the house. During the evening Barrington observed that Angela was certainly paler, and much more silent and dreamy than during his last visit. The presence of Miss Longleat seemed to exercise a withering effect upon her bursts of innocent gaiety. She resembled a flower which expands only in certain favoured spots. Sympathy of a subtle kind was necessary to her happiness, and from her father alone did she appear to receive it. Mrs. Ferris's affections were principally engrossed by Honoria and she had no deeper feeling than generally diffusive benevolence to bestow upon her stepdaughter. The old man watched his darning anxiously. "'She caught a chill upon the lagoon and has been ailing ever since you left,' he remarked to Barrington. "'She is a delicate flower and needs the tenderest care.' It was not thought prudent that Angela should expose herself to the night breeze, and after dinner, instead of joining his guest with a cigar— Mr. Ferris remained within doors and devoted himself to his daughter's amusement. Honoria, as was her wont, passed out to the garden, where, upon the pretext of smoking, Barrington presently joined her. "'Do you object to my cigar?' he asked. "'No,' she returned. "'It has a nicer scent than those to which I am accustomed. I am fortunate in not being required to tolerate the store tobacco. Is it true that English ladies smoke cigarettes?' "'Certainly.' "'Would you like to try one now?' "'No, thank you. "'We have not yet learned to imitate them in that respect. 
and I do not know how far I may safely take you as my guide. I don't think that Mr. Trollope's heroines smoke, and I am always told that they are patterns of English young ladies. You see, we Australians are under a great disadvantage, and it is rather difficult for us to decide between the morals of Mr. Trollope and Ouida. Barrington laughed. He began to think that Miss Longleat had not much to learn. They strolled down beneath the vine trellises, Honoria pausing every now and then to brush a rose with her lips, or to pluck a blossom from above her head. He was bewitched by the beauty of her figure as she lifted her arms. She plucked some strawberry guavas and handed him a few of the red berries upon a leaf. "'Come,' she said, "'let us eat our dessert by the lagoon.' "'With all my heart,' said Barrington. "'It would be a sin to spend such an evening as this within doors.' They walked to the lake and sat down beneath a mulberry tree that grew upon the bank. "'If there were only a moon, one could see the distant mountains distinctly,' said Honoria. "'How still and solemn it is!' She waved her hand towards the wide plain with its bosky border and dim background. "'You can have nothing like this in Europe.' Barrington relit his cigar and puffed for a few moments in silence. The night sounds deepened his sense of novelty. Every now and then there was a whinnying call from one horse to another. The melancholy cries of the curlew and moorpork alternated with the gurgling note of the swamp peasant. Save their own voices, there was no human utterance. The shadowy solitude seemed infinite. The surface of the lagoon brokenly reflected the stars overhead. Sirius shone resplendent, and the southern cross dipped majestically behind the Kurong crag. "'You must be very fond of this place,' said Barrington. "'I have not lived here much. I was educated in Sydney. Since I left school, I have only passed a few months of each year at Kuralbin. I should not be here now had not the session ended so suddenly. "'You take a great interest in politics?' "'I play at taking an interest in politics "'because there is nothing else to make my life exciting. "'And then, as you know, my father is the premier. "'Naturally, I am a part of his success or failure. "'But sometimes I am ashamed of my eagerness. "'I thought the whole thing farcical the other day "'when Parliament was opened. "'It never struck me in quite the same light before. "'I was horrified to think that I knew no better. "'You must feel as I do.' You must look upon our statesmen as marionette figures dancing to a set tune. Isn't it so? Barrington laughed softly. You despise what is familiar. To me, life here has all the charm of novelty. Yes, that is true. But it does not give me any comfort. Most people with cramped experience have no wish to enlarge their sphere of thought and action. I try to believe that I am unlike the rest of the world, our world. I dream that I shall be this or that in the future. I plan even for the morrow. I picture an existence in which I shall feel exquisite bliss or keen pain. I do not much care which, anything but vegetation. She threw her head back and, clasping her hands behind it, looked at him with bright, excited eyes. The poetic temperament has always an infusion of dissatisfaction, said Barrington. You are tormented by an inward craving which will give you no rest till it is appeased. What must I do? I do not care much about the things I know or the people with whom I am thrown. I want something altogether new. I cannot endure to go continually over the same ground. 
Tell me how I can make myself contented. You must love, said Barrington deliberately. Honoria's eyes sank before his steady gaze, leveled from underneath his straight brows, and charged with communicable fire. She was half repelled, half fascinated, and shrank back against the tree. Don't, she cried, don't look at me so. It, it makes me afraid. Then she shook herself together and laughed, as though ashamed of her involuntary confession of weakness. You must not think that I mean everything that I say. I am a person of impulses. Sometimes I have an impulse to like, sometimes to detest. You recommend me to fall in love, to marry. Do you not think that you may be condemning me to a lifelong imprisonment within a narrow circle of domestic interests? Why must married life be necessarily vapid and domesticity commonplace? Why not rather an effective background for drama, in which the performers need not be limited to two? I am convinced that to make the most of life one must cultivate many-sidedness, feel with the emotive, see with the spiritual, analyze with the critical, glide rapidly from one sensation to the other, dipping, as it were, into every nature with which one is brought into contact, and extracting a grain of enjoyment from each. To gain this end, one must have no strong individual aspirations, no special idiosyncrasy except a keen susceptibility. One's own destiny must be decided, and yours is still doubtful. Every woman is restless till she has probed the mysteries of womanhood. Perhaps you are right, said Honoria. I will think over your advice. You must have seen a great deal of the world and of the pleasant things in it. I am surprised that you should have wished to come out to Australia. Perhaps you don't intend to remain here. On the contrary, I have every intention of going through my course of colonial experience. There is one crime that is never pardoned in England, Miss Longleat. What is that? Poverty. But I have heard. Your brother is, is rich, is he not? asked Honoria naively. He would tell you that for his position he is a pauper. That has nothing to do with me. I suppose I ought to confess that I have run through a younger son's fortune. But a man must float with the tide in England. To catch far-off glimpses of my old life would have been to suffer the tortures of dives. So I have brought my modest competency to Australia, in the flattering hope that I may double it. Wealth is not of much account out here. Everyone works. A great many people are poor. I see there are advantages in a free country. So my mother thought, said Barrington. There was a tinge of bitterness in his voice which Honoria perceived. Your mother is in England, she said softly. I like hearing of other women, of English women especially. Do you mind talking of her? Will you tell me what she is like? She is très grande dame of a type you do not know, for it does not exist in Australia. Her fetish is the family glory, her hero, the eldest son. She is a rigid conventionalist, but you would never find it out, for she is soft as velvet. She dresses beautifully, her face is like that of a Greek statue. She is passive in manner, yet her influence has the most extraordinary power upon everyone with whom she comes into contact. And is there anyone else? Have you any more ladies belonging to you? There is my sister-in-law, Lady Barrington. She is a London beauty, but piques herself upon being a devoted wife and mother. 
she talks the shibboleth of the great world, hunts after royalty, and might be sympathetic if she were not so brainless. Then there are half a score of cousins, none of whom would be the least interesting to you. He glided on to commonplace topics, talked of Paris and London, of Scotch scenery and trips to Norway, described Castle Barrington as it lay among the Yorkshire moors, and in a well-bred, unostentatious manner, made apparent his claims to social distinction. Honoria's egoistic temperament rarely permitted her to feel deeply interested in any conversation of which she was not directly or indirectly the subject, but to-night she forgot to speculate upon the impression she was making, so powerfully was her own fancy aroused. Yet there was something faintly uncomfortable in the effect which his long looks produced upon her nerves. She felt tremulously excited and uncertain of herself. At last she rose discomposedly and proposed that they should return within doors and persuade Angela to sing to them. Barrington slept in a little white curtained chamber in the Ferris's cottage. A white lily in a vase upon the dressing-table conjured up visions of the lagoon. He guessed that Angela had placed it there. The night seemed long. His slumber was broken, and he had vivid dreams. In the morning he awoke with an excited sense of pleasure at the thought of prosecuting a new experience. Although he was well aware of his extreme susceptibility to feminine attractions, he was yet surprised to find what a strong impression Honoria had made upon his imagination. She belongs to a new type, he said to himself as he dressed. I must study her. He had ample opportunity for so doing during the next few days, spent in lounging about the garden, in picturesque walks by the river banks, in tete-a-tete rides and long desultory conversations. Under such conditions attraction might be expected to ripen rapidly into intimacy. Honoria appeared to him to be a mass of contradictions. One half of her nature was poetic, the other material. She was frank to boldness, and ignorant without giving the impression of innocence, so that he could not satisfy himself where her knowledge of the world began and where it ended. Often he thought her ardent, occasionally cold. All that he felt certain of was that she had an intense curiosity in all matters of sensation, and he was determined to see how far it would lead her. Underlying his speculations there was the distinct understanding that she was a prize, which, could he but win it, would enable him to remodel his career to his complete satisfaction. As Honoria Longleat's husband, life would be no longer barren. But she was just the sort of woman upon whom it was impossible to calculate with any degree of certainty. The spontaneity of her nature gave her continually new starting-points. The very interest which she was confident of having inspired might, by a momentary caprice, turn to aversion. He had dabbled a little in science, as he had dipped into the philosophy of art and love, and had bestowed considerable thought upon the reproduction of hereditary traits. "'It is inconceivable to me,' he said one day to Mr. Ferris, that a woman of rough parentage should show so many outward traces of refinement. The old man chuckled malignly. Ah, I see of what you are thinking. It would ruffle your family prejudices if you were to impale the arms of a bullock driver upon the Barrington shield. Make your mind easy. Where there is wealth, no one asks questions. Money gilds deeper stains than that of labor. But the blood runs thick. We shall see. You misunderstand me, 
replied Barrington. I looked at the subject merely from an abstract point of view. I think, he added thoughtfully, that there must be a strain of genius in Miss Longleat's nature, which partly explains its manifold inconsistencies. Genius, said Mr. Ferris derisively. You degrade the sacred title. I said the strain of genius. My dear sir, there may be a strain of insanity, which need not imply the necessity for confinement in a lunatic asylum. I should more properly have termed it passionate intelligence. Dear heart, said Mrs. Ferris innocently, mystified by the above dialogue which had taken place in her hearing, I never noticed anything particularly clever about Honoria. I have always been thankful, for my part, that she was not born a genius. They are poor creatures at the best of times, and she is a fine strapping girl that it is a pleasure to see. I am sure the way she has devoted herself to Janie is just wonderful. There is something noble about her that folks in general don't heed. In spite of his eager attendance upon Honoria, Barrington contrived to devote some time and thought to Angela. She was, at this period, much occupied with her painting, and it was in her studio that her sweetest hours were passed. Thither he often followed her. Her love had given a fresh impetus to the prosecution of her art, and her feverish excitement, arising from a cause which she knew not how to define, found relief in work. She appeared more silent and self-engrossed than ever, at the present time, preferring solitude and musing to the buzz of companionship. Her fluctuations of innocent gaiety were less frequent than of old, and the shadow which had always encompassed her seemed to have deepened into a mournful tenderness, which even Barrington's light caresses bestowed lavishly as upon a lovely child hardly dissipated. He accepted her guileless affection as though it were a breath of that tender perfume of womanhood which was so necessary to his existence. And if her wistful eyes, mutely demanding something which he had not to give, aroused a faint feeling of self-reproach in his mind, it was speedily allayed by her unconscious acceptance of his fraternal attitude, and her own childishness which seemed to place her beyond the pale of ceremonious restrictions. It became a custom with Barrington and Honoria to spend every evening an hour or more by the banks of the lagoon. The nights, warm and still, starlit and laden with the dewy scent of flowers, were provocative of suggestive conversation, in which thoughts and words flowed in unconventional channels, and dangerous allusions were tentatively uttered and softened by that mingling of daring and tenderness which, in the case of such men as Barrington, was calculated to exercise a powerful influence upon a woman of Honoria's temperament. Yet she had sometimes a helpless sense of being dominated by an influence of which she had not rightly estimated the strength, and felt a terrified longing for guidance, in which her thoughts turned instinctively towards Dyson Maddox. In her efforts at self-analysis, she vainly asked herself why she, who had hitherto accepted the adoration of her lovers with regal self-complacency, should suddenly have become a prey to vague tremors and alternate fits of excitability and silent depression, when either her spirits were at boiling pitch, or a heavy load seemed laid upon her heart and her tears flowed readily. Whence had arisen these strange thrills, which could not be exactly defined as either painful or pleasurable, that sensuous intoxication succeeded by moments of horrible revulsion, during which she hated both herself and him? One evening, when their talk had drifted from generalities to personal subjects, Barrington stooped suddenly, and gathered one of the half-closed buds that floated upon the lagoon. "'These lotus lilies,' he said, 
remind me of a type of womanhood which I know, passionate yet pure, combining the frankness of innocence with the strongest susceptibility to the influence of love. Honoria took the lily from his hand and held it against her flushed face. Barrington went on. You know whom I mean. Such a creature could only have had birth in a wild, free atmosphere. She belongs to woods and streams. She is the classic nymph, the essence of womanliness. You are the ideal Australia. Could I pay you a higher compliment? I dislike flattery. In some moods it irritates me. And you always speak so strangely. I never know how far I may place confidence in you. To women who have trusted me I have always been loyal, said Barrington deliberately. But I might turn the tables on you. How far are you sincere with me? What do I know for certain of your position? It is said upon the Koorong that you are to marry your father's colleague, Mr. Maddox. That is not true, replied Honoria gravely. I am also told that you are a dangerous coquette, that you lead men on to love you and then coldly reject them. It is no crime in a man to be attractive. Why should a woman be denied the use of her only weapon? You plead guilty, then. You are a coquette. I confess to being fond of power, said Honoria. You seem to tire easily of most things, said Barrington. There must be a sameness in receiving perpetual adoration. Would it not be a change if you were to stoop a little and to love? It would be a change, certainly, said Honoria, trying to speak without consciousness. I do not think that it would be an agreeable one. After this they were both silent. She knew that his eyes were fixed upon her, and though she would have given much for the power to lift her head and resolutely return his gaze, she dared not do so. She had a longing to rise and shake herself free from the fascination which was creeping over her and numbing her powers of resistance. She trembled and was ashamed that he should see how she was moved. Her only safety seemed to lie in flight, and she made confession of her weakness by leaving him. End of chapter 16 Recorded by Celine Major.